Who would like to do one? You can do one, John. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 86th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 22nd of June 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comments. Abigail Nussbaum wrote and said that we did a very good job of timing our podcast exactly to fit in with her commute. So, you know, uh, glad to be of service. Please write in with the length of your evening commutes and we'll see what we can do. And she said, a great discussion of a face like glass. And I'm not just saying that because I agreed with all your points. We're very pleased to have made points that Abigail agreed with because she's one of them, them clever people who knows a lot of stuff. So that was lovely. That Abigail, thank you. She has also given her official Francis Harding ranking for our future selection or anyone's future selection. And that list, I'm going to run through it very quickly, is Fly by Night and Twilight Robbery at the top and then Verdigree Deep. Gullstruck Island, A Face Like Glass, Cuckoo Song and the Light Tree, A Skinful of Shadows and Deep Light and Unraveler at the bottom. And the thing that's interesting about that is that those are the two other Hardings I've read and those, I didn't like them anything like as much as A Face Like Glass, but I still thought they were pretty good. So I am going to read all the other ones at some point. That's my plan. Thank you very much, Abigail. I'm not sure this list is actually in order, but Abigail, write in and tell us if we completely misrepresented you. No, it's not in order. I'm, that's nonsense. I just totally misread it. <laughs> it's got more nuance than that. Abigail would never just send us a list in order. It's a it's a nuanced ranking of which ones we should pick to read next. Um, and I, I went and bought a book based on this email, so it succeeded. Okay, that was completely rubbish. So actually, Gullstruck Island was her favourite, which is called The Lost Conspiracy of the US. And she says, hands down, my favourite Harding. So that's that's the one she recommends to anyone who asks, if you were asking. They're just going to take my my Brownies Reader's Badge away because I clearly cannot read and comprehend simple English text. We also heard from Christopher J. Garcia, who pointed out that they didn't do a Hugo Recommendations issue of the Drink Tank. Uh, and I discovered this while trying to look it up for the show notes and finding that there was not one. Uh, and so I would have mentioned it if you hadn't, Chris. What's happened? Look, right, I expect a certain level of service. And frankly, hmm, you're never going to win another Hugo with this attitude. <laughs> and then... um other things um he says he doesn't get many dms on insta but he does have a lot of friends who are porn stars so you know that's data that is that's good to know thanks chris chris is also fairly certain there's going to be a whole bunch of chinese stuff on the hugo ballot so agreeing with me there foreshadowing foreshadowing is it foreshadowing or a segue uh oh it could be a segue uh a segue yes so um Chengdu posted to their socials to make an announcement about Hugo Awards. I will read it out verbatim. Sorry, folks, but due to the amount and complexity of this year's nominations we have received, the committee still, still needs some time to work out the official nomination list. Be assured that we are working very hard to reach the completion line. Maybe one more week to go. 
And that was posted two days ago. So by the time you listen to this, it may indeed be out. But we did say that last week as well. So, um, yes. Also, it should be official finalist list. And frankly, I think it's appalling that no one from the Wispers division caught that before that message was posted. Shame. Shame. But more seriously, I think we all three of us agree that that message makes us think there's probably going to be some Chinese nominees on the ballot. Or at the very least, some Chinese nominees on the long list. Um, I mean, because I guess it's theoretically possible that they could crunch all the numbers and then it turns out none of the Chinese nominees get on the ballot, but it seems unlikely. Yes. So, yeah, I assume from that it means things are complex for one or both of two reasons. One is that the ballots have come in with lots of stuff on there uh, being represented in multiple ways, which we which we know is a problem, right? Because people can write, you know... Things with hyphens, things with quote marks, things in funny orders. Like you always have to go through and kind of tidy up the data to make sure you've got the nominations correct. But then if you're trying to do that tidying up across two different languages, that is going to be even more of a problem. The other thing I know is that they are using different software, I think, than previous years, which may be because this software better supports multilingual nominations but it may be that kind of things are slightly less smooth because they are using different software and you've got different teething problems i'm fine with it you know there's still plenty of time before the actual convention and they've said okay yeah it's taking us a little bit longer give us a bit of time fair enough yep means i might be right though so uh obviously good with me it does mean that (laughs) it does i think that's quite likely yes better get learning chinese read all the finalists like, because, you know, if they're all in Chinese, how will I meet the Briley competence threshold if uh, if I don't know any Chinese? I do I will note in a discussion of this, um, noted critic Nick Clark, she said she thinks she has only once in her entire history of voting in the Hugos read or watched everything shortlisted in a given category anyway. So that is a counterpoint to the Briley competence threshold, uh, which I enthusiastically endorse. What, in any category? Yes. I think, that, I think that is a much better use of one's time than uh, trying to read everything out of a sense of nobility or um, obligation. Read stuff you like and then do what you want. I think it's quite nice to um, do everything in a category. It gives you a kind of feeling of, I don't know, smug superiority in, in internet chat on that topic. I mean, I will say I don't think I have ever read, for example, all the nominees in Best Series in a given year. I have managed Best Novel and I think I've managed the entirety of, sh- of short fiction ballots and so on. But yeah, definitely categories I haven't read everything in. I've done all of best series before. I mean, I, I do tend to read all of the categories I vote in. But yeah, I just think you shouldn't... It's not a stick to beat yourself with, or it shouldn't be. No. It should be a positive, lovely experience, not a stressful, awful one. Much like life. I, I can say that I never find Hugo voting to be particularly stressful and awful, even if I haven't read anything. Read everything, even. To be fair, Liz, you find nothing stressful or awful on account of how uh, you are basically one of the most laid-back people in the universe. (laughs) I would describe you as horizontal, especially because you're knitting in bed right now. (laughs) I'm not always relaxed. I just, like, have a very go-with-the-flow attitude, which not always the best way to do things, but does lead to a maybe less stressful life than otherwise. Also, I recommend crochet. Oh, sorry. Liz is crocheting in bed right now. I always get those mixed up. I can't actually knit, so. Uh... Yeah, I actually, I actually sell a T-shirt that was suggested to me by Kylie Ding and Robin Stevenson that says, 
voulez-vous crochet avec moi? <laughs> That's quite good. We also, so um, Hugo administrator Dave McCarty posted to their Facebook uh, about the venue for Chengdu. Uh, and, and yeah, they've gone from a field to a conference center in a year. Um, and, you know, I don't know how many people got concussed or severely injured doing that or, or what the human toll was, but it is very impressive. Oh, I don't, you probably don't want to know the health and safety figures, but if you did, you probably couldn't find them. That's the thing, right? It's tricky because I see this and I'm like, that is very impressive, but we know how countries like this do these things this quickly and it's by not giving a crap about the people who are doing the work shall we move on to the much less controversial topic of covid (laughs) (laughs) the smoth news newsletter written by petraea mitchell basically is generally a massive list of conventions with a little bit of commentary at the top and it comes out about once every week i think um but i just read it for the bit at the top there is a new guidance from the cdc in conjunction with the american society of heating refrigerating and air conditioning engineers or ashray and they have picked a number to aim for in terms of covid circulation of five air changes per hour which is actually like i like this because it's a number that you could be like yeah we can benchmark against the number now and that's nice and it means we can stop talking about well i mean maybe not immediately but this is the first step on the way to sort of having arguments about what the phrase well ventilated means and starting to get towards a more um quantitative discussion of these things which i think would be quite good i thought this was interesting and that i thought i would mention it on the podcast yeah, so it's very interesting because when I've been looking at like air purifiers and things, because I own a home air purifier, they generally have this uh, value they call CADR rating, um, which is the clean air delivery rate. So basically, it's like kind of the, and it, it comes in, I mean, for mine, it comes in like meters cubed per hour. So basically, if a thing tells me this thing's like 200 meters cubed per hour, then you can work out the size of your room. And from that work out, like whether this purifier is enough to give you five complete air changes per hour or whatever. So, yeah, it's quite I think it's quite a good standard. You have to then work out the size of your room and work out the efficiency of your purifier. But then you can basically have one of appropriate size in appropriate spaced in appropriate size spaces, which is quite handy. Rather than just being like, I'm going to buy a big air purifier and put it in the corner of this room and assume it's all fine. I just like as a physicist, what I want is numbers. And so any numbers I view as good, good numbers. So I have some numbers um, because I've just been Googling furiously. Um, As always, when somebody says, here's what America is doing, I go, oh, there are other places in the world. So I check to see if the health and safety executive has um, advice on ventilation, which it does. And its advice on ventilation is um, five to eight litres of clean air supply per occupant of the space per second so you can probably turn that into air changes an hour um i would have thought that was rather less than um five air changes an hour in most um workplaces but i don't know is that is the health and safety executive have you got a link because i haven't read that i've put a link to its ventilation pages it's covid pages when it talks about ventilation in in respect of covid um points to the general ventilation 
pages it says that the ventilation is just the same as for covid as for everything all the other reasons why ventilation is important in workplaces i think the cdc ones are better because they explicitly say you know they explicitly include and this is what we are recommending based on covid being an important thing as well as all the other things for clean air changes things like hepa filters you know the the rating of your hepa filters uh you know and so on and also suggesting things like uv inactivation you know, which is a not a thing for all, you know, there's the reasons for having air ventilation. Like the reason I know about like clean air delivery changes and so on is because my air purifier was bought for pollution where you don't bother with like the germicidal standards. So I think it is worth, you know, making sure that they have taken COVID specifically into account and not just gone, you know, for what they had before. But they have done, but because it's a, this is in fact an outlet of the British government, I'm sure that John is right when he says it reflects government guidelines. Yeah, I like the CDC one better. As I said, five to eight litres a second. And the point about that one that's good is that it's per occupant, whereas the CDC one is per room. And I'll tell you, that really puts the heebie-jeebies in me because a room with no people in it will not develop, you know... It, how much you pack the room does matter a lot here, and, they, and, that, and that recommendation takes no account of it. Our cinemas were saying when they reopened cinemas, they said they were changing the air every seven minutes, which is, I guess, eight times an hour. So it's a bit more than that, but not a lot. But I do think that the number of people in the room is highly relevant to this. So I don't, I don't, I'm not just sort of instantly believing the CDC's recommendation here any more than anything else. I think, there are, like everything here, there's room for a range of views. It's a wor- it's worth noting that the CDC makes it clear that five air changes an hour is the minimum, and they do note that it's not clear how that scales up for like extremely large uh, numbers of people. I'm just deeply suspicious of what I don't want because, like, unless there's evidence that the health and safety executive has updated that ventilation advice from 2019. I what I'm interested in is how the science has developed in light of the fact that we've had a pandemic and I don't have much interest in pre-pandemic opinions on this because they don't seem particularly relevant and so like if the British government I mean I agree like you know and I'm very sorry that I posted an American thing without checking whether or not there was a British equivalent but at the same time if the British equivalent is we had guidance on this before and here it is then I think that's a sign that they're lagging. I agree with you and I think you were right and that the UK are just using the same old guidelines and the CDC have actually thought about it and based it on a Lancet Commission recommendation. So it has a key table, which we're going to link to, which is table one. And what it basically says is that the it counts by two different mechanisms, which are per volume volumetric flow for air changes, where it says good is four, better is six, and best is better than six. So the CDC's recommendation of five is kind of firmly there as between good and better. And it also has a volumetric flow per person, which it recommends, and that is the good is 10 litres per second per person, which you'll notice is significantly more than the HSE recommendations. So in conclusion... What that means is that the Health and Safety Executive has not yet updated its guidelines to take account of the Lancet Committee. So if you're listening to this HSE, get your finger out. And thank you for listening. Uh, We're thrilled that we have so many people in the civil service uh, as fans.
And on the subject of 2025, Seattle is the only Worldcom that has submitted any filing paperwork. Oh, wait, is that... When was the deadline? Was there a deadline? Did I miss the deadline? Deadline for site selection? Shit, were you going to bid, Liz? I mean, obviously, I wasn't personally going to bid, but normally I am on top of all things Whispers Constitution, and I've been slacking. To be fair, I've been on holiday. I think the deadline must have been... A couple of weeks ago, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, because they, they moved it when they moved the dates, because that's a movable fee spit. According to the Constitution, bid documents for opposing bids must be filed no later than 180 days beforehand, and no other bids have been filed, so Seattle will be the only bid on the ballot. So, uh, so yeah, well done, Seattle. I mean, so I like Seattle for two reasons. Firstly, Kraken logo, and secondly, Seattle is a pretty great city. So, um, so yeah, I'm. If it if it is successful, which I should expect it will be, but touch wood, uh, then then I might go because I like Seattle. Haven't been for a while. I've never been to Seattle, uh, so I like that idea. Oh, it's lovely, Liz. Ah, oh, no, we Stephen was like ooh, 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 Seattle, so I think I think the chances. We'll be at the 25 Worldcon and not nil. So it seems nice that it's gone to a bunch of big American cities. Maybe helps grow Worldcon a bit if you go to like DC and Chicago and, and Seattle. Yes. I mean, as well as, you know, London and, and Dublin and Helsinki and Chengdu and so on. You mean as opposed to like Reno and Spokane? Well, Spokane in particular. And I believe this is filed for Seattle, so... Um, and I understand, I don't want to say too much because I'm not like, I don't know these people hugely well, but I believe it is a completely different con running team that essentially Seattle has two bunches of smoths and it's the Norwest Con people doing this one. Um, and by and large, Spokane was not. Though, of course, World Cons are huge. Lots of people work on them. Everyone works, you know, most people do some jobs on all of the World Cons, but, but in terms of who the board are. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I just wondered whether Liz was being sarcastic. Like, I wondered whether Liz was being like, well, it's very good that American cities are having a turn because uh, they're, you know, we need to grow the world con by getting more Americans into the fandom. I I realised that's not quite what she was getting at, but it did. I was like, I just wondered if it was the most straight-faced sarcasm Liz has ever delivered on the pod. No, it was sincere. Like, if it's only going to go to the US, you know, four years out of ten which is what it has been for the past decade, then it's nice to have it in big cities where more people can reach them, basically. I don't know, maybe I'm underestimating the uh, ability of Americans to drive there. (laughs) And different big cities. I think it would be quite nice if it went to Los Angeles sometime quite soon, or, yeah? I believe there is a Los Angeles bid in the near future, and I have not prepared to answer this question but i believe that there is a bid for like 2029 maybe 2026 according to skiffy oh, that is that is sooner than i thought fair enough i mean because i think if you were going to pick three places to have world cons you'd pick la or san jose like well you'd pick la or san francisco but sorry san jose fans uh in the absence of being able to do it in san francisco san jose will do or you, and then you'd pick Seattle, and then you'd pick um, like Washington or Chicago, right? Because they're like the corners, and you wouldn't pick Orlando for reasons. I mean, many reasons, but it is, you know, uh, a humid swamp. Stars. That wasn't that wasn't the reason I was thinking of, but that is definitely a reason. And let's not go into. I believe it's an air conditioned humid swamp. Yes. Yes. 
That is true. I mean, yes, but if I say, you know, I got on a plane in Bangkok and got off it in Orlando and went, fuck me, this is warm and humid. So (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely staying in the podcast, Liz. I mean, yes, obviously, no, no, I do not want to go to a convention in Florida uh, in under the current political situation in Florida, which is, you know, unsafe for many people who would like to go there. But also, I understand other people do not enjoy Disney World as much as me or human swamps. On the subject of conventions in North America, should we talk about Pemicon? What did we have to say about Pemicon? They've announced their virtual. Yes, yeah, so Pemicon, which is the 2023 North American Science Fiction Convention, um, which I have a sort of peculiar affinity for because their, their symbol is a moose. And as you know, I once ran an Eastercon where our symbol was a moose. Um, now, as Pemicon is in Winnipeg, a place that has quite a lot of moose, and as Confabulation was in Docklands, which is a place that is not known for having moose at all, um, they probably have a slightly better claim to having a moose as their logo. But anyway, Pemicon has announced its virtual rates, if you're in the UK, um, which is $90 Canadian, which sounds like a lot for a virtual convention until you realise that the Canadian dollar isn't really as much as you think it is. But it's I, I think that comes out about 60 quid. And they're planning to have quite a lot of virtual programming. I was very excited by this because I saw their thing that said, if you voted in site selection, you will have a supporting membership. And of course, I voted in site selection, but I voted in Worldcon site selection. I did not vote in NASPIC site selection. If you voted in NASPIC site selection, you will have a supporting membership for the NASPIC. And um, if you didn't, but you got drunk at ChaiCon and bought a $65 Moose t-shirt by mistake, it turns out that also gives you a supporting membership, which you can then upgrade to virtual for, I think, $50 Canadian. And I'm thinking about doing that, even though obviously a lot of it happens in the middle of the night UK time because it's in Winnipeg, which is six hours behind. And it's going to be a really good size of convention. They've got 725 attending so far. So, and I guess it's mid-August. So I think it's going to be uh, kind of like a really cool size for for a, a national convention and way less big than Worldcons. So as I like Eastercon size conventions, it'll be a bit bigger than that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's awesome. I think that's good. On yet another Worldcon note uh, this week, Glasgow in 2024 now have the forms up to volunteer to be on programme or to suggest a programme item to happen at Glasgow in 2024. Um, And they are separate forms. And to be on the programme, you will have to, I think, to fill in that form, you have to create a login for the um, programme system panorama so we will link to the page that explains how you can do this but that is the best way to suggest things you would like to see at glasgow like live podcasts hint hint (laughs) (laughs) i think we should probably put in a bid for octothorpe live what do you think guys yes provided we don't have any ding-dong arguments that cause us to stop doing the podcast before then but you could always have stunt stunt all three of us if necessary Honestly, we could be on the programme or I could just be roaming the halls, doing guerrilla podcasting, uh, inviting people to eat weird flavours of crisps. Or both. I <laughs> do both, yes. No, no, that's, uh, that's good. Uh, I, think, I think I would like to do that. If there's anyone who particularly thinks it would be a bad idea, uh, do write in. Um, I, think, I think I probably am not supposed to say this as an official... I'm not supposed to say this as kind of an official pronouncement by Glasgow, but... Esther did say she was hoping to have 
kind of a, a room that was going to be set up specifically with podcasts in mind that was kind of had all the tech that was that that was needed to kind of split our streams for thought and things like that because I think there's think they're going to have a few i don't think we'll be the only podcast wanting a slot in the world Cup program yeah there may be there may be other superior podcasts that want a slot like hugo girl yes i mean with my uh glasgow program admin helping hat on definitely don't give us a slot because we're awkward fuckers we're a pain to wrangle uh no that's a lie <laughs> we'll be lovely and, and also, if you do give us a slot, you better have a facility for people who've caught COVID over the course of the weekend to podcast. Because <laughs> you know what I'm like, guys. The Clark Award shortlist has been announced. Actually, the entire Clark Award longlist was announced. And just when I'd finished looking at it and was thinking, oh, maybe I should try and predict what the shortlist is going to be, uh, they announced the shortlist. So <laughs> that took the wind out of my sails. It was quite a fast um, turnaround, wasn't it? It was very fast. So I didn't get a chance to kind of pontificate too long. Um, but yes, the shortlist is... Uh, it is Venomous Lump Sucker by Ned Bowman, The Red Scholar's Wake by Aliette de Bodard, Pluto Shine by Lucy Kissick, uh, The Anomaly by Herve Letelier, translated by Adriana Hunter, Coral Bones by EJ Swift, and Metronome by Tom Watson. Indeed. So it's, 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 it's the usual interesting list. I think they're all new nominees. It's got, um, you know, something's published as mainstream. It's got a translated novel on there. It's got something published by genre publishers. Sounds good, basically. Yes. In the show notes, Liz notes that she has read one of them. I have. Going to be the Elliot de Bodard. Correct. I have read the Elliot de Bodard. I have also read one of them. <gasps> Is it The Coral Bones? No. Is it the Elliot de Bodard? No. Oh, no, it's The Anomaly. You said so on Discord the other week. I did. The Anomaly <laughs> by Hervé Letellier, uh, translated by Adriana Hunter. So how did you find Red Scholar's Wake, Liz? I liked it, but I'm not sure I would have put it on my list of the best of the year. Fair. I think it's got some really great stuff in there, but it does not really hang together as a novel for me. I mean, I don't know if we wish to discuss the Clark shortlist in more detail, but I would say The Red Scholar's Wake is essentially, it's a space opera about kind of space piracy, but also um, a lesbian romance novel between a human and a ship. And I think that's got some really interesting stuff, but it didn't quite work for me as a romance novel or as a science fiction novel. Well, I like bits of it. Yeah, kind of it didn't, it didn't go maybe far enough into either one, if that makes sense. I, I would say it's still worth reading, so I think it's, don't think it's going to disappoint anyone who reads it on the Clark list. I'd give it three stars. Okay, fair enough. On the other hand, uh, a lot of books I've read because they're on the Clark shortlist, and I would give them one star. So, <laughs> <laughs> fewer than three stars. That is fair. Last year I had at least one absolute shocker on it, so um, so there was that. I enjoyed the anomaly. Didn't think it quite stuck the landing, but I did enjoy the conceit. So, um, so yeah, it was also a quite quick read. Was last year the one where one of the novels was a homage to a novel that you hadn't read, that's very famous, but that you hadn't read? And so, therefore, you probably didn't get what the author was trying to do at all? That was, um, I don't think that was in the, well, it might have been. Jamaica Inn, so Skyward Inn or something? Yeah. 
So I think I think there's an issue where where you've got something that's trying to resonate with something that's quite famous. Not everyone's going to have read that. Sometimes novels just of that kind just do not stand alone. I mean, I, I haven't read it, so I don't know if it's any good or not. But that might be the reason you didn't like it. I didn't like it because I the only interesting SF nor bit was the final chapter, and that would have worked very well as a short story. I think the thing I'd be very interested in is this, is the transcript of the judges' meetings for the Arthur C. Clarke Award because I'm sure they're phenomenally interesting. Yes, possibly. But I mean, I I love the process because what happens is that we end up with these very interesting shortlists. Oh, but it wasn't the worst book on the ballot last year. <laughs> the worst book was bloody awful. <laughs> No, so like um, last year's Clark list had two that I really detested, um, like really, really hated. Uh, and I am I am curious to know whether this year will be similar, but we will see. What's the other one you hated, John? Uh, A River Called Time by Cautia Newland. Ah. I hated it more after I read the afterword. So this year when they announced the shortlist, I did not immediately spread this news to my friends. I immediately went to my library's website where I managed to download two of them straight away and have another three. I think one's downloaded as an actual thing and then a second one that's coming to me by on paper. And then three of the rest are on my hold list. So I think there's only one that isn't in the London Library's consortium system. That's a lot better than normal. So I was quite excited by that. Mm. Um, So hopefully I will have read them before the announcement this time. I I think I am more likely to read the Clark Award shortlist this year if it turns out that the Hugo novel shortlist is entirely in untranslated Chinese, a a language which I cannot read or speak. Yes, I think that is fair. Um entirely reasonable. So um so yeah. Um I will look forward to reading them. Uh and etc. Alison, talk about your guff trip. Oh, yeah. Can I get which one about my guff trip? Right. I'm going to fly out, um, probably with Stephen as well, on the 26th of September, it looks like. And I'm going to go straight to Canberra, where I'm going to have a day to kind of collect my thoughts because it's a very different time of the day. And then attend Conflux, which is the um, Australian NatCon, as well as being the sort of science fiction convention that says it's for writers I think writers and artists. Let me see what it says. Basically, it it actually says it's not a convention for fans. Pretty unusual, but there we go. It is also the Australian NatCon, so I think it's going to get some fans whether it wants them or not. At least one. The fans are coming whether you want them or not. Fan, anyway. I like that. It is, yeah, it's an odd, um, odd tack. So I'm going to attend the um, National Convention, which is in Canberra, and then immediately after that, it looks like I'm going to go to Melbourne for about a week and then go to Adelaide and then have a couple of days in Sydney with Stephen not doing con things just kind of celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary which will be nice it's actually going to happen the 25th wedding anniversary after Stephen's flown back to the UK but you know what (laughs) what does the exact date matter really and then probably hang around with fans in Sydney if there are any I can find and then go to 
Perth and well, I'm going to New Zealand and I might squeeze in a few days in Perth or we might decide that it's all too much and I'll just go to New Zealand and do quite a lot of different things in New Zealand. It depends how the flights work. Um, but that's the plan. So um, if you are in any of those places and you listen to the podcast and you would like to put me up or put me and Stephen up or take me to do exciting things in Australia, like I'd quite like to see a cricket game, for example, let me know. That'd be good. Thank you very much. It's going to be fun. A variety of guff-related merchandise will be available soon. That is very exciting. I hope you have a great guff trip. I'm trying to think of ways we can invite the listeners to troll Alison on her guff trip, but nothing has sprung to mind yet, so you're okay. Oh, I was wondering if I should say to Conflux, do you want to do an episode of Octothorpe Live? No, unless you're going to have two stunt people. Do you not want to be a... Oh, no, because you won't be members. Okay, fine. How much is the virtual? I won't be a member and we'll be in bed. Will you be in bed? Well, I might not be in bed. John probably will. I mean, she's currently in bed, Alison, so it seems likely. Shall we do picks? Who would like to pick first? Uh, do you want me to pick first? Yes. So I have had a little holiday. And while I was on holiday, I did some reading. <gasps> That's not like you. You're taking the piss about how much I go to the beach, John. No, I would never. I think I'd probably go to the beach a lot as well if I were living near to some of the world's best beaches rather than living near to Southend and also Clacton. Don't make me send you pictures of absolutely beautiful beaches that you're not at. Oh, send me lots of pictures of beautiful beaches. Love them. Uh, So while I was on holiday, I caught up on, I think, the latest two full novels in the Rivers of London series. Uh, So anyone who hasn't read Rivers of London, it is Ben Aranovich's series of novels about Peter Grant, a Met police officer who basically works in the branch of the Met that deals with all things weird and supernatural. Um, It's quite a long running series now. There's a bunch of novels, some novellas, some graphic novels that I haven't read at all. Um, yeah, and I kind of caught up with the latest two and remembered really why I enjoy reading these. So I actually found the seventh book in the series, the seventh novel kind of ties up or partly ties up some plot strands right back from the first book. And I found it a bit dissatisfying. And so I sort of took a big break. And then the eighth and the ninth are more standalone mysteries. And yeah, they're just fun. They're just like well, well put together, well paced interesting mystery novels peter grant the main character is really fun to kind of watch him go from new met police officer to the person who is now starting to be the magical expert and mentoring his other colleagues at the stage these books are at he's also about to become a father for the first time um with his girlfriend who is also a river yeah and i i think the one weak point is i don't think they ever end quite as well as i would like them to the mysteries kind of always get tied up a bit too quickly or leave a little bit too much hanging for future novels. But uh, I just really enjoy kind of racing through these two and we'll probably pick up the next one whenever it's published. And if I had thought of this and read them earlier, they probably would have been a Hugo Best Series pick. But I didn't think about it in time. I thought it was one of the things that came up when we were talking about possible picks for Best Series, in fact. Could have been. Um, but I, I think I would say I think next year when the Worldcon is in the United Kingdom might be a good time to try and 
encourage all the British fans to vote their all the good British series onto the Hugo ballot. Yes, and I think there is a qualifying novella this year. So there is a qualifying volume. Ben Aranovich was one of the guests of honour at Reconnect in New Zealand, where I was also the guest of honour, and he was absolutely delightful. I listened to his interview and really enjoyed it. Thought it was very good. So I just want to double check. The two you read were False Value and and, uh, Lies Sleeping, I assume, Liz. No, the two I read were False Value and Amongst Our Weapons. Oh, okay. I don't think I've read Amongst Our Weapons yet, but I have read false value yes so i quite like false value i think amongst our weapons is a slightly better one um it also goes back but it also goes back to the leslie plot arc which i thought was a bit not well tied up in live sleeping but it's a long time since i read it okay having actually like done some live fact checking here uh rivers of london was nominated for best series in 2017 but it didn't win and has definitely had sufficient volumes to be eligible again since then. Good. Um, I, I read most of the first one and then on paper and then put it down somewhere and never picked it up again, which, I mean, I really, really, I was really enjoying it. It was like, so I don't know why I didn't, I, I will read them one day. I need to read more books, guys. Can you read them on your golf trip? They're good kind of books for ploughing through when you might be a bit distracted in transit and so on. Yes, that is fair. Which is not a slight against them, just that they're generally told in a fairly linear way and they're pretty easy to read. They're exactly the sort of uh, books that I think the Hugo Award for Best Series is a good thing, means that it's a good thing, because I think it is it is a difficult skill but it does reward like it means you can write these big long series and it and it you know you can have these massive stories and i think that is something that like i would never pick one of these books as like the best novel of the year but i definitely think this series is like a rollicking good read and i would recommend it to someone who just wants like some lovely books with characters that do interesting things but aren't like i don't know i think there's there's merit to that i'm not describing it very well yes yes and mashes genres together in an interesting way and also comes from a... Yes. Comes from a place... You, you know, the characters in this book are not well represented in science fiction in general, right? No. Fantasy, I suppose, more fantasy. More fantasy mystery than SF. But I do, I do like the book. Yeah, I really did enjoy the one I nearly read. <laughs> I mean, it does feel like they're very much the books about a modern London. Mm. Yeah, that's also true. And we like that if we live in modern London. God, John, have you just convinced me of like a good argument for where we have the best series, Hugo? God damn it, John. Well, this is this is the argument I've always <laughs> had in my head about the best series, Hugo. I'm just not sure I've, I've ever been very good at articulating it. Oh, you've definitely articulated on the podcast. Oh. Yeah, you know, you, I'd say that. I mean, the problem with the best series, Hugo, at least in part, is that that's not how people vote, though. They vote for... The series that contains their favourite novel of the year. Look, right, we can't we can't be <laughs> grumpy at Hugo categories because people vote in them wrong. Because if we were, that would, we'd just be angry all the time, <laughs> all all the live long day. Very hard being me. <laughs> on with the on with the picks because it's bedtime. Shall I go next on the basis that Alison's pick is even less SF northern mine? Yeah, go on. 
I went to a convention, listeners. I went to the UK Games Expo, which was held at the NEC uh, at the start of June. So convention's been running now for 16 years. I think the first one was in 2006, 2007, 2007, I think. And so I remember when it was in a Masonic Hall somewhere in Birmingham and it fit into a single room. And now it is the entire of the Birmingham NEC uh, Hilton Metropole plus three full halls of the NEC. It is truly bonkers now. But yes, I went and it was good. Uh, I had a lovely time and I played lots of board games. Board games with people who love board games. So I played an interesting game called Earthborn Rangers, which is really interesting. One of the one of the key things about this game is that it's fully compostable, which is an odd selling point for a game. But it means that when you finally like you decided to want to play it and slash or pop your clogs and your uh, next of kin doesn't want to play it, uh, it won't bugger up the earth when it goes. So that's nice. Uh, and it's a game set in a world that's a bit similar to horizon it's like a post-climate catastrophe world where humanity is kind of living more in balance with with nature than at the moment uh and it was quite kind of a nice contemplative little um kind of questy card game and uh it it particularly tickled my fancy because it felt very much like a cross between arkham horror the card game and seventh continent the board game and so, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. What else did I play? My friend bought a game called Solar Sphere, which is a game about building a Dyson Sphere that was nominated for or won an award. I can't remember which, but like that sounded that sounded like it would be quite fun, uh, and I look forward to playing that. I played a game called Flick Fleet. Flick Fleet is a very good idea for a game that I would never, ever buy. So the way it works is you get spaceships, which are bits of acrylic, and you put them on a neoprene playmat, and then you put um, you put asteroids on the near premium play map, and in order to move your ships about, you have to flick them. Oh, this is by the people who did asteroid dice. Possibly. So I I played that at Dragon Meat and thought it was hilarious and also mad, but you know I would never buy it. And I I got them to tell me about their Kickstarter for asteroid dice, which has now launched. And asteroid dice is a game where you have large dice and you throw them at people and and i'm never going to buy that but you know people seem to like it large like foam dice so if you want large foam dice you can buy them on the internet now yes 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 i am hmm i am confused because i know about asteroid dice but that's not on the eurydice the they're not on the flick fleet website so i don't know no, their game is... It's, okay, so I did not play Flick Fleet. I played a game called Shape Invaders, where you have a bunch of um, acrylic space invaders and you flick them at people. Um, that sounds like quite a similar game, doesn't it? Interesting. Turn any tabletop into a battleground with Shape Invaders. Aim, flick and eliminate the enemy. That has not yet been kickstarted, but it's coming to Kickstarter, it says. So... It looks less strategic. Yeah, no, it wasn't strategic at all. It was hilarious. Just, you know. Ah, so Flick Fleet, Flick Fleet is quite strategic. So Flick Fleet reminded me most of the X-Wing miniatures game. So you have like hit points and shields and like different systems that you can repair and etc. But it was just, it was a very good idea. I liked it quite a lot, but I was extremely bad at it. 
Yeah, so so I don't really believe in it. That's like saying that snooker or pool or games of that type are strategic because I know that they are, but they're not when I play them because I just try not to foul. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yes. No, and that's like, I appreciate that snooker is a very fine game. And yes, I would never play it in the pub. And this is in exactly the same wheelhouse where it's like... Oh, and I would play it in the pub. I love playing these games in the pub. I'm just very bad at them. I like watching other people play them in the pub. Have either of you played a game called Catacombs, which was also a Kickstarter? Um, um, and sounds pretty similar. Ah, yes. Dexterity-based Dungeon Delve. Yeah. It's like a dungeon game and everything is little uh, wooden discs and you flick them around. Ex- except for the armadillo which rolls and i always insist in getting the armadillo (laughs) where possible and you sort of roll it on its side and it goes somewhere completely unpredictable and it's fun i have played a game called dungeon drop where you hunt for treasures kill monsters having dropped all the pieces onto your coffee table from or gaming table from a height of about 12 inches this is a game that you really 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 want to play on a tray which we do because if you don't play it on a tray, then you have an additional game where you try to find all the little bits off the floor. Catacombs comes with, like, a sidewall to go around the board. Nice. Sensible. And a gelatinous cube. Dungeon Drop sells this as an extra, which is why we play it on a tray. I, um, I will attempt to link to all these things in the show notes, <laughs> listeners, but apologies if I miss one. Octothorpe Gaming Corner. Yes. Um, but no, it was really good. And I bought some games, but none of them are SF null. That's a lie. One of them is Asephnal. Uh I bought this. For the listeners who cannot see my camera, I bought Final Girl. Um, so Final Girl is a single-player game which kind of spins off of the Hostage Negotiator series of games. Uh, and it's based on the Final Girl trope, which is basically a, a thing that you find a lot in horror movies where you have like a single woman at the end of the movie who is like the only one left alive and is trying to stay that way. Notable examples of the genre include Alien and Cabin in the Woods. I bought, they basically do a lot of off-brand boxes, which are kind of horror movies that they don't have the rights to, that are like just generic enough to get away with it. So I bought the set, which is the Eva Morph, which has a picture of a woman who looks very like Sigourney Weaver on the cover. Uh, And that's quite fun. It's incredibly difficult. I have not won a game yet, but I enjoy it. And that's the main thing. Indeed. But yeah, I had a lovely time. It was really good. So my pick this week was going to be, um, well, I wanted to go last in the picks because I thought there was a fairly good chance um, that that would be either at the close of play or after England had got, had, had got all out. But in fact, they haven't. So my pick is the cricket. I am planning to spend much of the next six weeks listening to cricket, watching cricket, drinking beer and talking about cricket. Cricket, that's good. It's not very science fictional, though, is it? But yeah, England are playing Australia um, and the men, it's the men's turn this week and then it's the women's turn next week. And I'm going with science fiction fans, so that's science fictional, right, to watch the women play in Nottingham. So one of the great things about the rise, women's cricket is good. Women's sport generally is good. It's good that it's a lot more represented than it was even when I was like, you know, even 15 years ago, like it's come on in, in leaps and bounds uh, which is great. 
Um, but it does also give rise to there is a podcast called the Nobles Podcast, which, if you like cricket, is quite good. Uh, and they have started a trend of referring to the men's ashes and the women's ashes as the mashes and the washes. Uh, and that makes me very happy. So the, the mashes are on at the moment and the washes are on soon. Yeah, starting next week. Yeah, so they've already sold more tickets for the women's cricket than they did in the whole of 2022. And that included the game that I went to last year, which was the largest gate for a women's cricket game ever in the United Kingdom. None of this was really on topic for the podcast. So I did have a plan for what I was going to do as my pick, but I've had a bit of a mad week that hasn't quite gone according to plan. So hopefully you'll get that next week, which is a perfectly sensible and realistic pick of actual books that relate to the topic and everything. I don't want to. Um, I, I mean, I don't. I don't want to. I'm not going to check, but I suspect you've picked cricket before. <laughs> uh, it's possible, John, that I pick cricket every summer, starting with last summer, because I'm, I'm I'm still a new fan of cricket. There are two summers a year because of the joy of hemispheres, and that was the Old Thought Podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. God, there's a lot of news this week. There is, isn't there? I'm never getting to bed. The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.